Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The P53 protein is known as the guardian of the genome. It plays an essential role in suppressing tumors. Rain Therapeutics is targeting a regulator of P53 that is overexpressed in certain cancers and can inactivate it, allowing certain cancers to grow and progress. We spoke to Avinash Velanki, chairman and CEO of Rain Therapeutics, about the company's experimental precision therapy, Milidemitin how it works, and its potential to treat a range of cancers. Avanish, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about RAIN, its lead therapeutic candidate, Milidemitan, and its precision medicine approach to the use of tumor genetics to provide precision therapies. Perhaps we can start with P53, which is known as the guardian of the genome. What is P53 and what role does it play in cancers or preventing them? Sure. So uh, P53, you're absolutely right, called the guardian of the genome. It's a transcription factor. So it binds DNA and it induces the production of various proteins that, in the case of P53, are very protective to the body. Um, and it prevents cancer. So P53 is almost a sensor for when things go wrong. It induces the production of, of uh, other factors that can either tell the cell to stop growing, halt the cell cycle and, and freeze, or induce self-death, uh, self-killing uh, uh, self processes or apoptosis. So uh, very protective, uh, and we want a lot of P53, normal, healthy P53 hanging around. Well, what is MDM2 and, and how does it interact with P53? Yeah, so MDM2 is a natural regulator of P53 because the body, of course, has various feedback loops to eliminate other proteins. So one of the natural ways to eliminate P53 is, is by MDM2. MDM2 uh, binds P53 and its normal function is to export P53 out of the nucleus and really mark P53 for degradation by the proteasome. So MDM2's normal function is to is to prevent P53, uh, P53 from functioning. 
Well, how well understood is the role MDM2 plays in the development, growth, and, and spread of various tumors? It's quite well understood. And in fact, the pharmaceutical industry has explored inhibitors of MDM2 because of its function and because of numerous cancer types that could rely on MDM2 for, for cancer cell growth. So I th the, the role is well understood. The interaction with P53 is, is rather well understood. Um, and the goal really is to understand where, which tumors are most MDM2 dependent. And that's an important point. It's when you can find a tumor that is, is very reliant upon MDM2 for cancer cell proliferation, then you have something to work with and a, and a strategy to embark upon. But it is absolutely very well understood. And, and is it well understood how broad a range of tumors it's known to be implicated in? So MDM2 exists in, in most cells, so at, at a low level. So the question is not where, where does MDM2 exist versus which tumors have a lot of MDM2. Because once MDM2 increases, then it could actually have an oncogenic potential. So in terms of where MDM2 amplification or protein overexpression may exist, um, we think that's, that's across a variety of tumors like lung cancer, breast cancer, uh, bladder, melanoma, a, a multitude of cancers will have um, enhanced levels of MDM2, which could be very problematic. You know, it really is up to a precision oncology effort to, to identify at the patient level when there's a tumor that's going to be MDM2 dependent. Given that, is it possible that two patients with the same type of cancer and the same type of tumor could have different levels of MDM2 active in driving their particular disease? Absolutely. And that's why precision uh, uh, oncology uh, tactics and strategies to leverage next generation sequencing assays are really critical because when a patient comes in and is seen by their oncologist and they get their tumor biopsied, we need to know what's happening in that specific patient's tumor. And you're absolutely right. A lung cancer could have a high degree of MDM2 amplification in one patient, and the exact same lung cancer could, could not in another patient. So it's really critical to understand what, what's happening at the patient level. Your lead product candidate, RAIN32, is in late-stage testing for liposarcoma. What is liposarcoma? Liposarcoma is one of the soft tissue sarcomas. So taking a step back, we can, we can develop cancer in a variety of cell types, tissue types. It can be lung cancer, which we talked about, bladder. These are all different uh, tissues that, that could be oncogenic uh, or could form a tumor. Um, liposarcoma is part of the soft tissue sarcomas um, that could also lead to cancer. Liposarcoma comes from uh, lipids, is a cancer of the fat cells. And we could see these types of cancers arise in the extremities, in the arms and legs, um, or in much more serious locations like in the abdominal, the retroperitoneal cavity, where these tumors can really become entangled with your organs, uh, where it becomes far more difficult for, for surgery to provide, provide a route. Uh, but, but it is fundamentally a cancer of the fat cells, liposarcoma. How is the condition treated today? So the, the standard approach today is that if the tumor is in an accessible location like the arms or legs, surgical resection is the preferred route. Um, 
Now, once a tumor progresses, and unfortunately with many liposarcoma patients, despite multiple surgical resections, the tumor keeps coming back. And once it becomes uh, lodged in a location where uh, surgeons cannot access it, or there is significant spread, now they have to be treated with some sort of systemic therapy, like a chemotherapy. And so after the, the spread of these cancers, chemotherapy is the standard frontline agent of choice uh, to treat the, the tumor. What's generally the prognosis for patients? So unfortunately, once patients develop uh, more advanced disease, uh, metastatic disease, it's about two years, 20 to 24 months approximately is, is, is the uh, expected life lifespan. So what role has tumor profiling played in selecting patients for clinical studies of RAIN32? So that's a, that's a tremendous question. Um, and everything we're doing at RAIN is to make sure that we profile every patient. Now, our strategy today encompasses three clinical, clinical studies. The first one will be in liposarcoma, but specifically in a subtype of liposarcoma um, where we know all patients have MDM2 gene amplification. In fact, we don't really need a diagnostic to sequence those tumors because all patients are known to have this gene amplification. That's trial number one, or, or the MANTRA study. The second trial, or the MANTRA 2 study, which we just announced, uh, we dosed our first patient, is a much more uh, typical basket study where we're going to be screening every patient's tumor to see if they have the right genetic profile. And in, in that study, we will need a companion diagnostic if the trial is successful because we need to be able to quantify the degree of MDM2 gene amplification. Um, and that, but that's, of course, also an MDM2-dependent cancer. And the third trial will be in Merkel cell carcinoma. Merkel cell carcinoma is a form of skin cancer. It's a rare skin cancer that develops MDM2 dependence because of a virus. It's, a, it's an interesting statistic, but around two-thirds of us have actually uh, uh, contracted a virus in childhood, but it's, it stays dormant for many decades until later on in life, it actually uh, becomes reactivated. And through um, MDM2 overexpression, it induces a cancer. And so 80% of Merkel cell carcinoma patients are virally derived cancer patients. And we, can, we believe we can address those patients with, with uh, melodematin. Is your expectation that this would be used as a single agent or as part of a combination regimen? So both. In certain types, in certain tumor types where we believe there is a high degree of MDM2 dependence, we believe our therapy could be used as a monotherapy, as a single agent. In other tumor types where MDM2 may play less of, of a dramatic role, but could be supplementary to another therapy, combination therapies are, are absolutely an opportunity. One of the, the tremendous attributes of melodematin that we were excited with early on is the fact that it had such a, a benign safety profile because the moment a, a, a targeted cancer regimen has a tolerable, uh, a tolerable dose and a tolerable schedule, you know you can you should be able to stack this on top of other therapies. And that's absolutely part of the strategy at RAIN to look for combination agents to combine with melodematin. Well, what's known about it from studies that have been done to date? Quite a bit, quite a bit. So 
when we licensed the program from the prior sponsor, this was already after the completion of 107 patient clinical study. So 107 patients were already previously treated, generating safety data and efficacy data. And it was based on that data set, that 107 patients, where the safety uh, and specifically a certain dose schedule. So because MDM2 inhibition does lead to a specific toxicity, the holy grail of MDM2 inhibitors has been trying to find a, a dosing schedule that circumvents that toxicity. And the prior sponsor of this molecule was able to find a dosing schedule which was, which was um, uh, generated data that was far more tolerable than the history of the MDM2 class. Um, and so we do have that safety data already that, that gives us confidence that we have a, a tolerable regimen. And, and this is the other side of the coin, which is very important, that prior trial generated data in liposarcoma that showed that milidematin treatment tripled to quadrupled the survival duration uh, versus historical standards of care. So it's that improvement in survival that got us very excited along with the observation that the safety will allow for combinations. What is the path forward towards an approval? So we have commenced our phase three pivotal study this past summer. Uh, we've already begun dosing patients. Uh, upon the completion of that study, we would, we would expect if the study is favorable and if it meets the pre-specified hurdles for efficacy that have been set in the protocol, we would, we would hope to file in the U.S. and, uh, and outside the U.S. for regulatory approval. Uh, so we do expect this to be a registration enabling study. Would you expect to seek an approval with a companion diagnostic or no? So for liposarcoma, again, we don't need a companion diagnostic uh, for that lead indication because all patients with this subtype of liposarcoma already exhibit the appropriate genetic signature we're looking for. In the second trial, in the basket trial, in that situation, we believe we would need a companion diagnostic ultimately if we were to go for approval. I know you're also conducting a basket study. These are usually to, done to determine in which cancers a drug might provide the greatest benefit. This is a, a phase two study. Did the liposarcoma study emerge from this work? No, no. So the liposarcoma uh, data emerged really based upon a rational look at the biology of liposarcoma. So that that prior data on liposarcoma was a study that that uh, prior the prior sponsor overtly looked into liposarcoma patients, uh, but a basket study did not preempt that trial. We are moving into a basket trial because we believe that there's a couple of ways to achieve success for this program. One, if our program, Melodematan, shows activity across various tumors that have a certain genetic profile. We would love to be able to seek approval for a pan-tumor label, approval across any tumor type that has a certain degree of, of MDM2 amplification. Now, the point you raised is, is uh, how some companies historically may have used basket trials to look for a signal. That's, that's a secondary strategy. So if we start seeing from our basket trial that maybe responses and efficacy is, is bucketed in certain tumor types over others, that certainly does lend for the opportunity to expand, expand the trial just in those tumor types that appear to be more sensitive and then pursue a registration strategy there. So there's two ways here to achieve success, we believe with melodematan. One, 
in a tumor agnostic setting and two in a, in a, in a much more tumor specific setting upon expansion. And are you profiling patients in those studies for MDM2? Yes. In, in the basket study, um, patients with any type of solid tumor could be eligible if they have a certain degree of gene amplification that we believe is appropriate. And so we've set a certain cutoff point that if, if a patient with any solid tumor uh, has more than 12 copies of this MDM2 gene, they could be eligible. And so in that situation, uh, we definitely need to profile everyone's individual tumor and, and the inclusion criteria mandates that they need to have a, uh, a next generation sequencing confirmation of their copy number. It's a, a compelling thought to uh, seek an approval for a pan-cancer therapeutic. What do you think you're going to have to show FDA? It's a great question. Now, there isn't a lot of historical precedent for what that level of success ought to be. There's only three approved therapies today that have achieved uh, a, a tumor agnostic FDA approved label. And and the efficacy ranges are, were pretty high for those initial uh, initial programs. Uh, Larotrectinib, entrectinib, and, and uh, pembrolizumab are the three uh, in MSI high patients. Now, more recently, there's other companies that are pursuing basket trials, which we believe may suggest an even lower hurdle for success. So we believe that possibly a 30% response rate with a duration of response, you know, in the five to six month range could be a, a lower bound by the FDA. Um, but that's, that is yet to be uh, proven, and uh, no tumor agnostic uh, trial has been approved based upon that, that level of efficacy yet. But, but we think um, we think 30% could represent the lower, lower bar there. And in terms of the basket study, how broad a range of cancers are being looked at? So most all types of solid uh, cancers. We are not looking at the hematologic malignancies, the blood cancers, so no leukemias or lymphomas in the study but patients with lung cancer, breast cancer, bladder, melanoma, uh, several other solid tumor types uh, are all eligible. So uh, as long as they have the prerequisite amount of MDM2 gene amplification. It, if I'm correct, this is an unpartnered asset. Are, are you building a commercial team to market this on your, on your own or are you seeking a partner? It's a great question. Uh, we are doing both. <laughs> so we are absolutely building a team with commercial capabilities so that we can begin preparing for whatever the future may hold. But our our, our expectation is that uh, if there is positive data across one or multiple of these studies that we're running, we will have, be given the opportunity to partner. And of course, it's our, our job to make sure we do what's in the best interest of our shareholders. And so we will we will certainly be open to all of those opportunities. Avanesh Falanki, Chairman, CEO, and Co-Founder of Rain Therapeutics. Avanesh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. 
Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.